0: Welcome to the anthro to ux podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists, working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective, and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, Business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. Today I'm here with Anna Pachone. Anna is a senior experience researcher at Facebook on the integrity team. Previous to that was uh teaching as an assistant professor at San Jose State University and had worked in um, ecological consulting for many years. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about the journey from that, which is interesting because you're the first person I've talked to within uh ecological anthropology background so we'll touch a little bit on that and how you managed to uh now end up in ux which is kind of interesting and we'll of course talk a little bit about your work at facebook um so anna thanks for coming on would you start by just letting everybody know um a little bit about your background in anthropology how you came to anthropology you know why ecological anthropology
1: Yeah, Matt, thank you so much for having me. It's great to to be with everybody here. Um, So I I always think about people who go into anthropology. It's innate in in us. We're, We're the people who want to explore the world. We're interested in everything around us. When I was 16, I moved to Spain, did an exchange program for a year because I just had to see something new. And so I... I just feel as though it's always been in me to want to explore what's out there, the different people, different environments, um, different, different ways of life. And, and I couldn't help myself. It just was the most natural fit. So in college, I majored in anthropology, um, and Spanish double major. And, um, and I, I I fell in love with the sort of diversity of ways in which we can, practice the discipline and think about questions within it. It's great for people with low attention spans. Um, and those of us who liked diversity in our lives, um, there's no one track that you need to get on. There's always sort of something new that you can ask in a new direction that you can take this discipline in. I mean, the study of humans past present and future, it doesn't get bigger than that. It's kind of anything goes. And, and that's great for people who are just sort of incessantly curious.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you know, I f- find your comment interesting because I've, it's sort of like consulting, which I've always worked in and have always enjoyed consulting because you get to touch everything. So between anthropology and consulting, it's like basically perpetually can't make up my mind, you know,
1: exactly,
0: <laughs> which is perfect, you know, get, get to focus on just all over. But, um, you know, that's uh, your point is, is well taken. And um, uh, Dom Podia from, you know, why the world needs anthropologists, he had the comment, uh, he said it now, I've seen it in a few different places that we get to study like all the cool stuff like sex and religion and, you know, you name it, which is, you know, another great way of saying it. And um, obviously, it's true. Now, in your case, you studied ecological anthropology um, for your PhD. And so, um, while it obviously relates to many things human, you know, there's also some, some other kind of components to that uh, which are interesting. And so how did what was your interest in that as opposed to something um, you know like today UX, which is sort of humans and products?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to caveat my sort of bridge from um, from college to back to academia, I took a five year hiatus, um, went to work, didn't anticipate going to graduate school. I just kind of got to work. Started at Wired Magazine a thousand years ago, and um, was introduced to tech, which was great. I'm from the Bay Area originally, so it wasn't that unusual for me to be sort of surrounded by that um, conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went to work in market research. Um, and I fell into that just kind of accidentally not having an idea what it was really, um, but got involved sort of in that, in that world of asking questions about, the, about industry um, and businesses and um, understanding kind of product market fit in certain ways in advertising and realized I really didn't like it. <laughs> Um, it just wasn't for me at the time my curiosity was getting the better of me and I felt kind of stuck and so I went back to school thinking I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this degree but at least I'll come out on the other side with a degree and some more experience so I went to get a master's degree in Washington State um, and that's where I kind of fell in love with the connection that people had with their natural environment with the indigenous people of the northwest coast I did some kayak um, guiding there and sea kayak guiding and met a lot of the native communities. And there was something about that intense connection with the natural environment. To me, this this environment here in Seattle and Washington is spectacular and powerful, and the relationship that people have with the land here and with the coast and the ocean and the resources. And when they spoke about the disappearing resources and sort of their struggle to maintain cultural identity, in light, in in the face of losing these resources and the struggles that they're having to sort of reconcile, not not having access to certain um, um, environments or resources that are a part of that environment, like salmon, for example, uh, and having and trying to maintain their cultural tr- their their traditions and their identity, that the, the questions to me just exploded. It was there was something very powerful in that moment that made me want to think about how humans. De- interacted with their natural environment, how they changed their natural environment and depended on the resources in the natural environment. So it was just a logical next step to go into a PhD program that had that exclusive focus, which is what they do at the University of Georgia, where I got my PhD. So it was a program in ecological anthropology that integrated a lot of Eugene Odom's work because he was a professor there in the Department of Ecology, founded the Ecology Department, and um, so, a lot of overlap between this sort of looking at um, it, looking at human environmental interactions, borrowing a lot from the discipline of ecology, such as the notion of resilience and panarchy and hierarchies of nested, interactive and interrelated systems, and, and how they interrelate, and, and thinking about humans can become resilient just like an ecosystem, a natural ecosystem, can.
0: Really interesting. So on that point, um, obviously, you know, we've just kind of come out of the heat wave up there. There's, you know, lots of changes that are happening in the environment. I'm just curious, you know, even if it's, um, you know, more of just an observation than, than uh, any kind of like quantified data backing it up, have you noticed much of a difference in the environment since you first went up to the Pacific Northwest to now?
1: Boy, have I ever. I mean, it's really, it's it's changed Fairly significantly, the fires, for example, the drought that is in the Pacific Northwest that was never here. I didn't hear about drought. I didn't smell smell smoke in the air. I, there, there wasn't sort of ash falling on my car. And last year that happened. Um, it was smoke from the Olympic Peninsula was on fire. Southern or Northern Oregon was on fire. All of California was on fire. Um, I don't really see how we're going to escape that. Um, ultimately in in this area. So it's the climate change has proven itself to be a very sort of solid competitor of humanity right now in the face of the human-induced climate change. So um, I think that only makes these questions a lot more prescient that we have to be thinking about how we depend on the resources that we have and how we can sustain them. And technology is not always the fix. You can look at Malthus and sort of talk about war, famine, and disease and how we're looking at the ways in which humans are sort of exceeding the carrying capacity of the planet. And the argument to that has always been that – that uh, that we have technology can fix it and we can sort of fashion some something to create more water we can desalinate it's true but is that scalable and so a lot of the questions that i ask myself and have been asking in my career as an ecological anthropologist translate pretty well to the work i'm doing now scalability that's a buzzword <laughs> in the industry that, that we hear a lot, um, but also human adaptation to technology. And it sort of brings me back to my very first job when I graduated from college at Wired Magazine. And it was when the internet was nascent. It was just a thing. And I used to tell my students this. I, I worked at Wired Magazine when there were 24 employees, and we had one email account to share, and it was Hotmail. <laughs> That <laughs> wired. It just. Blew. A student once in the classroom said, "How old are you?" I don't know, hundreds, but um, it's, it goes back to how humans are adapting to their environment, whatever that environment happens to be. And you can look at that as a physical environment or a natural environment, a built environment, and in this case where I work now, a technological environment. So what are those adaptations that people are making and how do we either get ahead of those or think about the ways in which people are going to need these technology products either in a social network um, kind of capacity or some of the hardware that Facebook's exploring right now. What does that look like? And what does adoption look like? How do we become sort of more integrated into these spaces? And what do, do we need to get rid of? We might not need what we have currently. And how do we adapt that as human culture adapts to these products and Also, what good can we do with that? How do we maintain resilience in our species? How do we sort of keep ourselves going and maintaining the the way in which we live by not altering it too fundamentally and too quickly with the introduction of new products? So I see a lot of overlap, actually, in that adaptive process to changing dynamics of technology. It's just not in this sort of ecological sense of the natural environment right
0: now. But, you know, the innovation of tech and adoption and even our perspectives, cultural perspectives of, you know, science and say today, information technology and like the role of engineering, obviously that, that changes across groups. And so I'd be curious before we get to like, you know, your pivot to Facebook, just to stay on this point real quick, I'm wondering if you've learned anything from when you were working with indigenous peoples of the area and you know in comparison to you know what you see in like say the tech culture and you know are there any strategies that have seemed to work better in terms of technology adoption or resilience or even you know um, just uh, you know potentially not adopting or, or not taking on a certain mindset about how technology might be the solution
1: Yeah, and that's a great question, because even in the development sector, they always look at how do we get people to adopt this new technology, because it might be that it's helpful. It might be a new, like in the case of the Green Revolution, a new strain of rice that's more productive. Um, How do we get people to adopt that, or maybe water conservation? And it's always from the bottom up. It's never from the top down. It has to arise organically. So at Facebook, sometimes we look at what people are doing organically already on the platform, like. Are they forming new communities or the marketplace is a great example of that. People were doing it and sort of buying and selling stuff. And then Facebook says, well, let's formalize this because people want this to be happening on the platform. We can make that happen. So it has to be an organic and largely collaborative or at least something that people want rather than imposed on them saying, oh, you're going to use this marketplace to buy and sell your stuff now instead of whatever else you're doing because it it doesn't work. You're not going to have adoption. It needs to be a behavior that people are already integrated in and that is culturally appropriate to whatever the system happens to be. Is it culturally appropriate to Facebook the platform or is it country specific? How does it, how does it um, work within sort of the dynamics of cross-cultural interactions? Um, And I think, that it's, it's really important to consider these aspects when we're designing new products entirely because any sort of top-down approach is just not functional and adoption's not going to happen. And the transfer of technology and technological um, information happens within groups. And so you need to be able to have that information flow within and between people. And that's only going to happen if it's, there's a, a need and a want and a desire for these new products
0: and how that um i i i i'm very much in agreement with you i though i think you know when you look at all companies maybe you know facebook included some seem to organically kind of pop up right there's the opportunity that presents itself and we we formalize it a bit others are sometimes still pushed kind of top down and sometimes successful sometimes not um, VR is one that jumps out, you know, cause I know Facebook's very interested in it. I'm not suggesting that VR is not going, it's, it's not going to find like a really good home in terms of its application. Right. But it, it seems like something that has been forced a little bit more to date without per se landing in that, that sweet spot. Um, and you know, I'm just wondering, And again, we do got to sort of get back to your journey into Facebook, but I'm curious, you know, if I'm not sure if you've worked on, you know, a tech like that there, um, but have you seen anything in the course uh, where there is sort of like a top-down approach that has ever worked? And what were the sort of factors that helped maybe convince people to adopt, if you will?
1: You know, I haven't actually seen that. And I think that the hardware at least where I am now the oculus for example and some of the other de- hardware and development um, is future thinking and it's forward-looking and I don't think it's been released long enough to fully grasp how how people are adopting it in certain settings I think for gaming it's largely been very um, popular because mm-hmm. it just allows a new dimension into gaming and some of the elements of of that experience that people want are are present in that ARVR headset it's fun it allows a new dimension it creates some different opportunities for collaborative gaming that you obviously don't have in a two-dimensional world um, some of the new stuff I can't say because it hasn't been released yet and I what I do know and having worked on some foresight projects at Facebook is that it's not sort of something, an idea that comes from out of the blue and somebody says, okay, we got this idea. We're just going to build this and make it and and let's go. Um, It comes with a lot of sort of ecosystemic thinking about sort of what are the social and technological and economic and political issues that are going on in the world. And how do those coalesce and sort of to manifest what the, products are that we're going to need. Um, I did a really interesting project looking at sort of e- the e-commerce space um, at Facebook and looking at all of those dimensions of sort of the ecosystem outside of Facebook, outside of just the population using Facebook, but what's what's happening in the world politically? How is that going to impact maybe supply chains? Um, how is that going to impact laws and regulations about e-commerce and the global transfer of goods? That That's a really important thing to consider as you're developing a new product um, for functionality. So really needing to take into account all of those kind of externalities that on the surface don't necessarily have a great impact say on a oculus headset but ultimately it does are we going to get the components we need that you know to to the chips (laughs) that are necessary to power it um and we all know that that's a problem right now in the world of chip manufacturing um so it's it's actually a a much bigger picture um than it is about you know some people in a room sort of saying hey this is cool i'm into this let's make this it's it's kind of more more larger scale and forward looking um, about what how can we meet the demands of what people are interested in now and possibly into the future. So there's a little bit of of soothsaying, you know, of what of divination of maybe this is what they're gonna want, but it's based on all of these factors that are sort of burning that engine. Um, to, to make something happen in the future. So it's uh, it's a little bit of hypothesizing, but based on a lot of fact and a lot of understanding of the world.
0: So, you know, that sounds like a relatively mature practice there, which one would expect given its size. Um, of course, it's not that way everywhere, right? There's much smaller teams who, for many reasons, can't put in, uh, you know, the time probably largely because of cost, right, to do Correct. that kind of work. But in your case, it seems particularly fitting that you're involved in that. I mean, your, your previous training, your sort of systems training, if you will, thinking of kind of these big interconnected systems, really lends itself to this type of work. So maybe, um, I know we've already been touching on some Facebook stuff, but maybe you could just give a, a little brief story of how did you make it from, you know, teaching and consulting in the ecological space to Facebook?
1: <laughs> That's a question I get asked often um by people wanting to sort of follow in those footsteps and 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 i don't blame anybody who wants to do that it's a Really exciting way to spend the next chapter of my life. Um, So, I was a professor for 10 years. I was tenured for eight years at Cal State Dominguez Hills and then went to San Jose State. So, a total of 10 years in the Cal State University system, which is fantastic. Um, (laughs) Love being in a union and all this wonderful stuff. Um, But concurrently, I had a consultancy um, I was sole proprietor of, and it was largely based on actually only based on ecological consulting in the fisheries sector, um, mostly consulting with NOAA, the Port of Los Angeles, the Santa Monica Bay Restoration Foundation. Um, And along as I was engaging in this work in the fisheries space, because that's actually where my expertise is in anthropology and the work that I've done um, academically, I I found a A company that was involved in the tech space of fisheries. So talking about new advancements in, in anything we do, technology is entering, um, most of our natural resource management rather quickly, particularly in the fishery space, because it's a resource that you can't see. It's sort of, it's migratory. None of it really makes a lot of sense. So technology has a, and it's overfished. So we have also problems of, of, um, of resource stability. And so there was this company based where I was living in Palo Alto, and that worked on um, on hardware that would allow fishermen to see um, real time video from the wheelhouse. The captain could see what was actually happening around the net, so that they could only they could reduce bycatch, which is the fish you don't want to catch. It was get, only getting the fish that they were after. Um, and I was fascinated by that. It was just something that I. I I knew I had to be a part of because I wanted to be a part of the vanguard of that industry. Um, and it was also something new, again, going back to that innate curiosity of like, what What now what can I do? Now what? What's And that's part of just who I am as a person. I'm not sort of one to get a job and stay there for the rest of my life, which sometimes I wish I could do that, but no. Um, I don't. So I got involved with that and I I started doing a lot of UX for them. In addition to policy, I was sort of the policy expert there and talking the liaison to some fishing communities and with NOAA because of the connections that I already had Um, and a little bit of sales. And and then looking at the, the UI, I started looking at this interface and working with the company to help fishermen understand what it was that fishermen needed To make sense of this really complicated hardware that was sort of a a prototype and they didn't know how to make it work. So how could we make this work better for the people who needed it? And I think without knowing it, that was my entree into the UX world. Um, And I didn't put two and two together until later on that that's what I was doing, um, in addition to some other things on the product.
0: So when you were doing that, were you even aware of what UX was?
1: No, um, I, I really, I, I'd heard of it peripherally. Um, I knew I had a lot of students at San Jose State in the master's program who wanted to get into that. And I felt terrible. It's, it's particularly in retrospect that I couldn't help them because I didn't know what it was. I was teaching them policy and other other, other things in the world that you can do with the master's in anthropology um, rather than UX. So I, I, no, I didn't, I didn't know what it was, but I, now, now that I work at Facebook in the UX realm, I actually can see that that's what I was doing. And so it really helped me be able to speak to some of the processes when I got into the interview. Um, and I have to back up a little bit because... I, so I had this consultancy. I got involved with this company called Smart Catch, really innovative company making this um, hardware for fisheries. And... I was at a point a juncture after a decade of being a professor where I felt that something had to give. It was getting a little redundant for me. I didn't have any new questions to ask in my my particular field. I would go to the conferences and it seemed as though people were saying the same thing over and over again. And honestly, the thought of teaching Anthro 100 again for another decade or longer was just kind of a I loved it. There were moments of teaching that, that I will never forget. And I repeat stories of these light bulb moments that would go off in students' heads. And that was the most gratifying thing. But I was getting, I think I was getting a little bored. Um, and so I was thinking, well, what can, what can I, what on earth can I do? What, and the economy was kind of bad. and um, But I quit anyway. And I got um, a position at a global uh, human Center design consulting firm called Incedum that's recently been acquired by Fjord and Accenture. Um, And they made me the director of research, and I became um, just sort of overnight. Needing to get involved um, and the steep learning curve of human centered design, and not so much UX again, but it's more that design thinking of helping companies understand complex processes and develop products out of that. So that was a, a bridge that I had between for six months. No, pardon me. For a year um, prior to joining Facebook, so again, that really helped me develop and acquire the knowledge and the language that I needed to be successful to get my foot in the door at Facebook.
0: Got it. And so, today at Facebook, you're on the integrity team. And so, can you say maybe a little bit about you know what what does integrity mean in that sense?
1: Yeah, at Facebook, integrity means sort of um, compliance and enforcement of our community standards. Um, And it is a very, very important sort of core um, team to the responsible development um, of products and also the continued enforcement of um, keeping bad actors off of the platform. And off of um, of and people free from harm on the platform, including scams and and other activity that are harmful to individuals and in society. And so that's what we work on. I'm on the business side of integrity. We have two different integrity teams. One is central integrity that deals with kind of everything facebook (laughs) of groups and and pages and profiles and creators and instagram and all these things and the business side's a lot smaller it's the ads and commerce side of integrity so looking at we we have a political advertising team um, which i'm not involved in i'm much more largely involved in the commerce side so how do we keep commerce safe for consumers um, what does it look like from both sort of a uh, user interface standpoint, but also behind the scenes? How do people interact with our policies? Do people understand our policies? Um, do they have a pleasant experience on the platform? And if not, why? And how can we remedy that? And basically keeping all the bad people off and trying to get ahead of them um, constantly to learn the tactics.
0: So I was just, um, I just actually had this conversation with a previous episode I I recorded, but the conversation of um, privacy came up and particularly the conversation of even like just policies, privacy policies, you know, and there's, um, you know, the terms, if you will, broadly speaking, is one of those things that, it seems like from the literature and from my own research, many people do not read. I think we've all had our own experience of just sort of clicking the, you know, the, the clicking on the you know to accept. Um, but there's even if we design that in a way that doesn't allow for simply clicking through, there's still a question around like understanding there. Right and and legalese and and general terms and and getting people to you know to really understand what they're agreeing to, from both uh, if it's a commerce perspective or you know in my case it was studying uh, genetic platforms and so how people were opting into giving away that data, Um, right? It's it's wide reaching and so I'm curious have you done any research in that space just around you know people's sort of perceptions of agreements and. If you can't talk about it, that's fine. But I'd I'd love to know, like, you know, your perspective on what we could do to help people better understand those terms.
1: That's funny. I'm actually embarking on a study this week on that subject. Um, I can't talk about it anymore. But yes, that exact topic. Um, And I, I I'm really pleased that so much work right now across the teams is going into the the user experience now that the products have been built. And I I think that, you know, Facebook sort of innovated rather quickly and there are a lot of products out there. And now we're starting to look at that true functionality of those as people interact with them. And there is a lot of attention being paid right now to those interactive experiences, understanding, education, um, well-being of people on the platform and, you know, a lot of people tackling it from a lot of different angles, which is, neat to see how that kind of coalesces, but there and I just this morning, I, I saw somebody who was doing work that overlaps largely with some work that I'm doing. And that's really interesting because she's working on a different team with different people, but we're kind of looking at it from the same angle. Our thought processes sort of said, Hey, this might work. This is a cool concept. Why don't we apply this to the space that we're in? And so we might collaborate and, um, so there, there is a lot of attention being paid right now to those kind of user-facing experiences. About how do we, how do we make this better? Because I mean, we want people to enjoy the experience. <laughs> like, come back, come back, use use the tool. It's good. And if it's not a good tool, if it's not a good experience, we're going to lose people. So let's make it the best it can be. And it's the attention to that is just really kind of remarkable to see on so many different teams. But one thing that I do really love about Facebook is the ability to just have this massive research community, so many people with amazing diversity of backgrounds who all are sort of in this UX space that come from academia, that come from design, that come from other other types of backgrounds, even engineering, um, market research, and you see somebody because it's a really, it's, it's a social network within a social network, the way that we interact. Um, we have, we work on workplace. Mm-hmm. And so it's people, there's posts all day. I mean, sometimes it's like a overload of information, but you read people's posts and their writings and their materials and you see their decks and their presentations. And it's I mean, it's fascinating and to see how maybe you can work with them or if you're bored of your team, you actually can apply to go to a different one. And so I went from marketplace to business integrity. If I wanted to, I could try to go to Oculus. And, you know, and that is for somebody like me. <laughs> the short attention span is wonderful because if I get bored of the integrity space or find that it's not really fulfilling or I'm not challenging myself enough, I can go somewhere else and stay within the company. And that's an exciting um, prospect.
0: So that brings up a few things. Um, I won't probe on like sort of research at Facebook because chances are you won't be able to talk about much of it, right? So maybe we can focus on a few things you just said there. So, first off, you know, the kind of research that you just sort of alluded to is, you know, generative or foundational. It has big implications on business strategy. And so increasingly, I'm trying to talk about how does, you know, our work as anthropologists, but those in the, the sort of bigger, broader UX space contribute to other things besides, you know, usability and really help sort of tease that out, um, So strategy is a key one for me. You know, I I come from a business background. I've always worked in this space, considered sort of very part and parcel to the work that I do. Um, So I'd love to hear maybe, again, not specifically maybe talking about like not recommendations or anything like that at Facebook per se, but how do you see your role, you know, interfacing, um, you know, with the business teams from a strategic perspective? And what do you think our contribution there can be?
1: Yeah, and and there's so many people at, at, Facebook that come again from these in the research in the research realm that come from backgrounds that are quite extraordinary. Actually, sometimes, wow, I'm in this company, it's (laughs) a little bit intimidating on occasion. Um, And given that it can be a bit challenging to only do the tactical work, because that's, simple it's not that it's unnecessary and not really important because again if the interface isn't good if people aren't having a good physical experience with the product they're not going to come back they're not going to use it so i understand the severity of how of of just how important tactical research is but it's also really fun to go in different directions when you're informing product and that can be at the strategic level And so oftentimes what we're allowed to do and we're encouraged to do is to think strategically. And so that's where the curiosity comes in of asking questions. And sometimes that naivete in a space is wonderful. As anthropologists, we know this, that we go into a field site very ignorant of that field site to some degree. And it helps us have that etic experience of that objectivity of how do we ask the scientific questions? Why are they doing that? And then we can get at why they're doing that. The EMIC experience comes later, that insider's perspective. We want to get that too. But to, to get there, first, you have to have that objectivity. And that's really how I feel constantly in this space. And so I ask questions that other people aren't asking because they're looking at it. Maybe on my cross-functional team, you have a project manager and you have engineers and you have designers and they all have their own backgrounds and their training that leads them to look at a product in a certain way. I look at it in different ways with my holistic understanding of how humans engage with with products or with an environment. And so I've had a lot of fortune actually by sort of my curiosity bringing forth questions that other people weren't asking that then I could go and explore. And sometimes that foundational or strategic or foundational research that leads into strategy comes from secondary research. Oftentimes it's not going out and talking to people. In my experience in integrity, I've done a lot of external literature reviews and talking to experts in the field and synthesizing that information. And recently on my team, I did that. I I was just curious about a subject area. I did some research I broke it into two parts, two components of this particular area, and ultimately ended up in an experiment launching because I identified a way of looking at this problem space that no one else had conceptualized before. And that's a strategic um, strategic impact on on this team because I sort of looked at a different angle of the same question simply because of my background and my training. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, you know, you refer to some of the research as tactical kind of like, you know, usability. I think it's what many, really many people think of when they're coming into UX, because it's sort of like, you know, the glossy uh, thing that everybody can kind of point to on the internet. But there is really all this, you know, this whole other layer that sort of sits behind there, especially in mature teams, large organizations, you know, organizations with budget and time um, to do that kind of, you know, future thinking type research. And so... For anybody who is really interested in doing more of what you do, which I think a lot of people are, right? Yeah. A lot of people are very much want to do that kind of work. Yeah. Sometimes as you're coming in, you need to start maybe at a junior level, but for those who want to kind of progress maybe along a path from junior to senior, or for those who are maybe mid-career and looking to make a switch, what would you recommend um, You know, anybody think about in order to kind of better prepare themselves for that type of work in a tech company?
1: I know that at Facebook, they are very keen to hire people with PhDs into the research space. So education goes a long way. Um, The internship process is at the PhD level. So almost all of our interns exclusively are in PhD programs. Um, And while I don't want to discount other types of training because it's important to have, like I said, angles, ways of looking perspectives are critically important. There is something that you develop throughout that extensive academic training that allows you to conceptualize and hypothesize and really formulate questions that are, that you can operationalize. How do you measure this question? What does it mean? And those are, that's a complexity that comes, comes with training. Um, Critical thinking is absolutely paramount Um, and that again comes with experience Uh, being able to look at systems and think systemically and look at something way over here i can't see my hand but way over here and way over here that how could those ultimately coalesce into something that's meaningful for this product so again training is is and experience. Training and experience are very important there um, to advance to either the senior level or get in at mid-career at the senior level. Um, I think that if you can develop a portfolio also of being able to talk to a strategic level pr- um, project that you've done in your current iterations. So if you're at a smaller company, taking the initiative to Maybe take a usability study a step further. If you are left with a question after you do that about there's still a why behind it, if there's still something about why are people not doing that or why are they doing this or why is something happening over here and it's not happening over here, pursue that. Then you'll have your strategy. Then you'll have something that's a layer beneath the superficial of the actual interface that you can talk to about the why behind people are or are not doing something in their relationship with that product. And and that's strategy level.
0: I also wanted to come back to the comment you had. So you talked about how, you know, a colleague who was in another team was researching something in very similar space. So now you two are, are talking, but, you know, that doesn't always happen in organizations. You know, maybe that's because of sort of the nature, the social nature of Facebook. Maybe that's more common there, maybe it's not. I don't know, but um, you know, sharing insights, maintaining you know insights across a, presumably in your case a, a large team, a you know a team that's geographically spread out, uh, and keeping all of that then sort of aligned to a maturing product vision, you know, can be challenging. And so, can you speak to? anything that maybe you're all doing to kind of keep some continuity between, you know, a large team, whether that's systematized or not, or if it's just something more sort of human than, you know, a rigid system. But you know, I'd love to- it's something I frequently ask people, um, you know, and especially in your case where the team is large and, and, and spread out, it's, you know, it seems really needed. Right. And, uh, more so than a small startup. And so I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on how to solve that problem because it comes up frequently.
1: Yeah, and absolutely. And I have those same thoughts internally. Um, it's it's so big and it grew so, it grew so fast that it's it, we're catching up a little bit even with internal sort of organization with regard to the information we have. We have a research library now. And so you can go in and it's sort of like going into JSTOR and typing in some keywords and you can find what other people have done. That's mostly functional. Sometimes people will type in, there's a, a group within Workplace that's, who is the researcher for is the title of the, the group. <laughs> and so you can go in there and say, hey, who's working on this? And what's remarkable at this company? I mean, truly remarkable is the collaborative, collegial, friendly, helpful nature of everybody at this company. I've never been met with anybody who said, I'm not telling you, or I'm possessive, or my space back off everybody wants to work with everybody else. And I mean, it's just bizarre, especially coming from academia, where it is very sort of a zero sum game. Here, it's not. Um, And it's just it makes it just like, it blows my mind all the time when I see that happening with me or with others. That all said, it really comes down to the individual. When I started here, I was told that success is about who you know, and that's who you know internally. And it's I mean, it's the social network at work. It's it's how you socialize your own work. Do you keep it to yourself or do you like splash it on every group possible and do readouts and talk to people? My My success to date has largely rested on my sort of, Aggressiveness in meeting new people and saying, "Hey, I want to work on this and setting up meetings with with people with XFn, with program managers, with lawyers, with policy people, um, driving pros, uh, projects that I'm interested in and sort of nagging but in a in a nice way, but making sure that it doesn't sort of fall off because people have other priorities. Um, and making those connections so that people know my name, they know my expertise. And they will come to me as a result of knowing who I am. I mean, it's just like networking in the real world, but in this sort of large space because there are so many different teams. There are so many time zones and people. And every day I uncover a new team that I didn't even know existed in the space of integrity that has nothing to do with research, but it has everything to do with research because they're working on the same projects that I am. So is it working with lawyers or the ops or investigations or, you know, all of those people, we need to come together. And so it's being aggressive and not shy. Shyness is the worst thing you could have in a career anywhere. And even if you are shy, don't be because the worst thing anyone will say is no, or they're going to ignore you. That's not a problem. (laughs) That will just roll off your back. Like that's not offensive, you know, get yourself out there, send a resume out. One of the best jobs I ever had I I was desperate for money um, writing my dissertation, and I wrote one form letter, sent it out to about 30 different fisheries organizations globally that had social science either peripherally or significantly involved in the work that they did. And one wrote back and said, hey, yeah, we actually want you to come and move to Denmark for a year and work at our institute. And great. So I got a job. And (laughs) You know, you just, worst thing that'll happen is being ignored. That's okay. So, and the same thing happens at Facebook. You just got to meet people, talk to people, get your name out there, make meetings and outside of the research community. It's really, really important because research doesn't go very far if you don't have the support of people who are calling the shots of your product managers, of engineers, of engineering managers, of other people who are highly influential on the team that you're working with. And um, if you want to have people respect the work that you do, you need to establish relationships.
0: It's a great point because frequently, so on the podcast, we have talked about the need to shop the the insights and and sort of recommendations around, Mm -hmm. but not so much about you know, hey, I'm here. I can do this for you, and I'd love to do this for you. Um, huh? So that's a different perspective that is, I think, interesting, especially in a large organization where um, there are potentially people who don't realize the value of research, don't know who you are, et cetera, right? And um, so I think that's that's a great recommendation for anybody that falls in that space. Now, of course, if you're in a smaller organization, that's a little easier. Um, but it's uh, nonetheless, I think, fair. And it's not all that different than uh, many of us have experienced in anthropology at large, right? Because we're still, yes. we've always been having to tell people kind of what we do and who we are and why we should be involved. It shouldn't come as a surprise or a or, or new, you know, a new uh, task or anything, but So can you also talk a little bit about the type of research uh, you're doing? I mean, I know know we've said sort of foundational, but what does that really look like from a methodological perspective?
1: Yeah, and I do a little bit of everything. I mean, there's tactical work in there that I throw in some usability. Um, I'm on a new team that is all about a specific product, and we have to understand how it it's a, it's an internal product. And so how are the users interacting with that? Because if they don't understand it, then it's going to fail and it's not going to be functional. And it's really actually important work. And it's kind of exciting to see how they're interacting and understanding the material in there. So I do do that. Um, the foundational work I do, um, And 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 I'm in a unique space. I I really have an atypical space that I've carved out for myself at Facebook. Currently, it wasn't like this on my previous team on Marketplace, where I was on a very specific product team. I was the researcher amongst a designer and a content designer and a PM and engineers, and we sort of worked as a pod um, on the products. But even then, I did foundational research. So while there was a lot of usability to be done because it was a new product in development. I, my brain d- d- goes always a little astray. There's always something that I'm thinking of. So for just for example, how I get that foundational research going is um, I, I saw a report that the people using the product weren't the people we really thought they were, like in the world at large. Um, we were sort of designing it for one group of people and yet there was this sort of segment of society that was being left out, um, or not catered to in the way that it should be. And I, I found that to be really interesting because of the statistics that I read. And so I decided to deep dive into that one segment of society. Like what are their needs here in this space? Sorry, heard something outside. Um, what <laughs> startled me, um, what what, it, what is it that they need? What are their concerns? How would they prefer to interact with this product versus who we're traditionally building it for? Um, and that provided sort of a very important foundation of the direction in which we should take that product. Not that we're going to change it fundamentally, but that we could build onto it other products, other features to this product that helped make it a more inclusive experience for this other segment that's foundational research that's helping understand that hey this is actually the user base and this is what they need this is what they want and here's how we can make the product even better and more universal and have better acceptance largely Um, other foundational work i'm doing is i'm finding spaces now that is are interesting to me. <laughs> and sort of, like I said, going to the PM, going to other people on the team and saying, hey, I'm here, give me your roadmap and identifying sort of problem areas or gaps in understanding that they have identified, or maybe that I've already identified and saying it fits into the roadmap here. I'm going to pursue this in collaboration with that PM. And so, because, again, you, you don't want to go off in too much of a Sort of tangent because then you're not going to have impact and that's not helpful we don't have the luxury in industry like we i did in academia and a lot of other people who came from academia to sort of just go off on knowledge seeking for knowledge sake and that's lovely <laughs> you could write an article get it published and no one will ever read it and nobody cares as long as it gets published but here you got to publish something and people have to act on it it, that's the impact, is that you've got to move a needle somehow. So if you just sort of go off on your own direction, you're not going to be successful. And that's why I talk about the need for that kind of networking um, and collaboration and getting people on board, whether or not it's your direct product team or if you're like me and you're working sort of across multiple teams where you're identifying problems, that you get the right people in your corner who are going to support the work that you're doing and that it's aligned with the work that they're doing as well. So that you're looking at their roadmap and working in their priority spaces, because if it's not a priority, again, it won't get acted upon and you won't have the impact.
0: You find that there's anything, uh, so assuming you're aligned with the roadmap, do you find that there is any best way? Well, let me say this. So assuming you're aligned with the roadmap and assuming you're doing a, an adequate job of sort of, you know, uh, shopping those findings around, those recommendations around, do you feel that there's anything that you've learned that helps you you know, just get buy-in beyond those, those measures? Anything that has been particularly impactful in a large organization?
1: And buy-in has to come from the beginning um, too. So it's not about the shopping around the recommendations, but again, it's about getting people to say, yes, we need this. So sometimes they don't realize, it might not be on the roadmap. It might be an idea that I had that I found that, that sort of came to me from the way that I'm thinking, and it wasn't necessarily obvious to the product team to put it on the roadmap. So I would go and talk with the product team or the PM, the project manager, and possibly an engineer or a data scientist or somebody else and write a prospectus of one pager and shop it around and not around to like multiple teams, because not everybody's going to be interested in very specific team information. But maybe do a readout, have a Q&A, talk about the importance of it um, and get buy-in that way so that ultimately there's something for them to look forward to. They're saying, oh, that's really important. I do want that. And that's happened to me about three times in the past two months where I've had a project that there's a lot of investment, as we all know, that goes into a research project, a tremendous amount of time and effort and prep and you don't want to do that and have it not land anywhere and and i've learned that lesson many times because i just am a little bit stubborn about not wanting to do what i want to do um only so i've i've learned to to get that buy-in and so recently the the project about policy and understanding that we discussed superficially um is one in which I, I shopped it around to multiple people to make sure that there was buy-in from everybody across all of the cross XFN, all of the partners that were involved in this space, um, just to make sure we were doing the right thing in the right way and that there was, there was buy-in. And then I went to another team that was somewhat peripheral and said, hey, I'm doing this. Is this interesting to you? Are these countries appropriate? Um, are these the subject areas we should be focusing on? What do you think... And when people, and we all feel this way, having ownership over something makes you want to be a part of it, makes you want to protect it or act on it. Um, The same thing goes for the environment. You know, if we want people to protect the oceans, they have to have been there to have seen the ocean, to see how beautiful it can be and see the devastation that occurs with with pollution and to feel a sense of pride when it's clean. Well, that's the same thing. Again, I'm translating my experience in ecological anthropology to this space, but having that ownership over your project. And ownership isn't them telling you what to do. It's feeling like they contributed. And they had the ability the opportunity to provide some feedback to your discussion guide, your project plan, whatever it is, and and then it gets even more buy-in that way. And then, of course, after the fact, then you go and do your readouts to multiple teams.
0: Yeah, a few people on the podcast have said almost make it feel like it's their idea.
1: Yeah, I, and I, I could see that with certain personalities. I haven't felt as though that I need to do that here. Um, I, I haven't ever worked with any product team or any individual on a product team where I had to sort of manipulate people into thinking that they came up with it. And I I could see how that would happen in many, in many spaces. Um, I've been in other situations outside of here in my experiences where you've had to do that here. It's really just people give credit where credit is due. And to say that, yes, this is something that is interesting to us. And we weren't thinking about that before, or it aligns with this place that we're going or this, that, that's where I felt that that was the most important.
0: Yeah. Which sounds refreshing. So (laughs) um, one question for you, maybe kind of, and then we'll uh, sort of work to wrap up, you know, given your, your past, all the work that you've done, the success you've had, in the academic space first you know both in terms of your own research your your previous consulting you know teaching and now being at Facebook and the level of rigor you bring to your work i'm wondering how you feel about something you know which maybe we don't talk about enough but you know you're producing a lot of knowledge that would be helpful to many parties Uh, Of course, it's oftentimes held internally because it becomes intellectual property that can create sustainable advantage. Um, And I, you know, I appreciate that this will be your opinion, of course, not representative of Facebook, but, you know, do you think there is an opportunity or that we should try to be doing something in some way to get some of that knowledge out that we're learning in corporations?
1: Absolutely. And it it goes both ways. I mean, I think that academics need to... their their publications are largely internal to the academic community and they cost prohibitive to get dispersed throughout. And there's a tremendous body of knowledge stuck on JSTOR and EBSCOhost that nobody can access either. And so one of the things that we do is actually engage in a lot of academic partnerships um, here. And people do publish um, in peer-reviewed journals, but again, it's sort of... <laughs> In the pure, the pure space. It's public. Um, people can access yeah, that, quote unquote. Public, right? You could pay five hundred dollars for this article. Um, but the academic partnerships, I think, are really important as our partnerships that I'm engaging in right now with NGOs. Um, and other institutions, and I think that, again, so much of what we do, unfortunately, is under strict NDA um, and proprietary information due to the sensitive nature of it in the integrity space or the, like you said, the sort of developmental uh, intellectual property that comes out of it, so it is a corporation. I mean, that's just the bottom line um, of... of of how this works, sure. yeah. um, and there's kind of not a lot of ways to get around that. On the other hand, I think that I do find it very refreshing that um, you're rewar- encouraged to um, present at conferences at academic conferences at epic at um at least i'm speaking from the research space people go to they go to other types of conferences but i have every year of my life for the past over 20 years presented at the sfaa's (laughs) sort of that's my space and i keep going back to those to present Um, i haven't presented anything from facebook but we are allowed to it has to go through countless rounds of review as you can imagine Um, and I appreciate that. I mean, I, I really do. It's it's a little bit tough, but I, I, I appreciate that now, knowing what I know about sort of the being in, in industry in, in a corporate setting. So I think that we're trying a little bit. People are rewarded for that, for speaking about the research that we do. I think that there, there could be a bit more of an effort to socialize some of the information we're doing more publicly beyond academic collaborations that, again, are sort of peripherally public. Um, I'm not sure what that would look like because, again, it's just, uh, there's very little information we can get out into the world. Um, And I think a good start are these conferences, but even more sort of public facing would be wonderful. I mean, it'd be I'm, I'm, my mind's sort of reeling right now, thinking about all the things we could do, and sort of like an educational platform, or sort of informative about some of the the spaces that we're we're talking about. But it would have to be past tense, I suppose, um, and not not forward looking so much, because again, that's the intellectual property that makes Facebook successful. Yeah. No, for um, sure. No,
0: I, I understand the the challenge there. It's just, you know, especially say as we increasingly move into well uh, things like integrity, well being, you know, anything kind of in the political space, and of course anything sort of AI, and you know, yeah. the, there's increasingly a need I th- to have you know public conversations about these. But it's obviously challenging because of intellectual property, and so I don't have a good model for that, but. I'm, Figured I'd ask and see if maybe you had any ideas. Um,
1: I, I wish I did. And I just, every time I think of one, I shoot it down in my head because it's just, nope, nope, can't do that. No, that's not going to work. So I would love for it to be a more public facing dialogue because you're absolutely right that there is a lot of sort of fantastic, innovative information coming out of this space on the issues of privacy and integrity and innovation and ARVR, But you know, they'll they'll get out there in the form of the product um, being as good as it can be. <laughs> and I and guess that, that's where we the way. can manifest it.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, um, so I appreciate your time, Ana. Where can everybody find you? Where's the best to get in touch?
1: Uh, let's see. Um uh, my email address, would that be helpful? Whatever you
0: want. I mean, well, LinkedIn or get, whatever you think is is convenient.
1: Have, um, yeah, LinkedIn. Um, and my name is Anna, A-N-A, and my last name is P-I-T-C-H-O-N. Um, happy to talk to anybody and everybody, not that I have a lot of... <laughs> Of, of positive of, of help um that i can provide but you know if you're interested in having a conversation just about my experience or your experience and maybe brainstorming um i'm happy to happy to engage great
0: thanks for that appreciate it and um, so i enjoyed our conversation it's always uh okay as somebody who works in the startup space i always love hearing about the inner workings of large organizations so thanks for sharing <laughs> what you could so yeah uh, thanks appreciate it take care
1: thanks so much for having me matt wonderful speaking with you
0: thank you all for listening to the anthro to ux podcast to learn everything you need to break into ux visit anthro there you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources please like share and subscribe see you next time